Hey there, my name is Ushin Lunny and this is Audio Matters, a weekly podcast on all things audio presented to you by Harman. This week's episode is called LA Confidential, where we travel to Los Angeles to visit the studios of three of the most brilliant audio professionals on the planet and hear the real life stories of their extraordinary careers. I'm honoured to be introducing three very special guests who have more than likely worked on some of your favourite albums of all time, with artists like Steely Dan, Fleetwood Mac, Blondie, Supertramp, Outkast, Tyler the Creator, Doja Cat, Earth, Wind & Fire, Joe Cocker, Toto, Prince and rock gods Spinal Tap. Welcome to the podcast, Platinum Award winning producer and engineer and post-production guru, Lenise Bent multi-platinum and two times Grammy award-winning producer, mixer and therapist Neil Pogue and film composer, record producer, songwriter, keyboardist and man of many talents, CJ Vanston. Lenise, you have an amazing career. Amongst other things, you were the first woman to receive an RIAA platinum album for your engineering of Auto American by Blondie. And you've worked on some really iconic recordings, including Steely Dan's Asia. What was your path into the control room to work with Steely Dan and what was the experience like? Oh boy. Well, the very first studio I ever was in was a home studio. It was Leon Russell's friend of mine, Roger Lynn, was his engineer. He said, oh, you should come over and see Leon's studio. And I was a huge fan of Leon Russell. And so I said, sure. And I was studying film at the time. So um, that Day after school, I hurried over to Leon Russell's house in Encino and rang the doorbell and and he actually answered and and I almost fainted. And uh, he said, oh, you must be Roger's friend. Come on in. And um, I walked into the foyer and to the right where a dining room typically is, and that's what the room was, was this amazing control room with this wonderful music coming out. It was a record called Will of the Wisp. That's what they were working on, that one. And uh, I walk in and I see this console and and I see this uh, Stevens 40-track tape machine and I see monitors and I see outboard gear and and I just had my epiphany and I, I said, show me how to work this. And the next day, I dropped out of university and found a recording school, Soundmasters, and uh, signed up and then went home and told my parents what I had done. And um, and they were thankfully very cool about it. So from then on, I would go to Soundmasters and Monday and Wednesday nights. And then because I wasn't in university anymore, Tuesdays and Thursdays, I would go over to Leon's house and Roger would let me practice what I had learned in class the night before. So Roger would let me come over and go, here's an 1176. This is what limiting does. Here's a compressor. There's an LA-2A. This is what compression sounds like. And and um, and then I got to practice and um, it became very clear to me that um, if you know what you're doing, your environment can really support that. So when I graduated, I looked around for jobs, got one at the village as an assistant engineer. My goal was to work with the best producers and engineers and musicians in the best studio with the best equipment. So I arranged that 
uh, by getting a job at the village. Then I assisted on a variety of things. My very first day at the village, uh, my very first session was with Alice Coltrane. And it was a tracking day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, I started there. And then I heard that Steely Dan was coming into the studio and, um, there were six assistants, and only one was going to get this. So uh, I knew I had to work twice as hard to get it than, than anybody else. And a friend of mine worked at Warner Brothers, so I asked him to get me all of their re- records. And uh, I just listened to every single one, read all the credits, learned every song and what their sound was, who played on what, what their style was. I just totally educated myself. Um, So I would be prepared because I was determined to get this and and also terrified if I did. And I have to say, um, when I got it, that that was great. And I knew it was going to be a very long project. And... Um, one of the reasons I got it was because I was willing to work on something that was going to take virtually a year to record. And the other assistants didn't want to work on something that long. Uh, I was fine with that because I knew the uh, integrity of the project would be incredibly valuable. So um, the first day (laughs) we worked on a song called... um, when Josie comes home, Josie. So I was just totally intimidated, and it took me about two months before I understood their language, Donald and Walter and Gary Katz, the producer. CJ mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, part of sessions and all that was about 15 minutes of joking around and, and funny and and having a good time and all that. Um, not so much with them. <laughs> Um, the the musician certainly did that and roger nichols was uh, hysterically corny in all his (laughs) you know really bad techno jokes and stuff um but donald and walter did not really do any small talk uh and uh and but that was kind of intimidating uh for a while until i got comfortable with them and realized they weren't being snooty or weird or anything that's just how they were you know and uh and it was okay and we got to be really good friends but i worked on that record 10 and a half months and um wow yeah and with the best people i mean i've got some of the most incredible memories um especially um when wayne shorter came in to do the solo on Asia, um, Donald wanted him to be on it, got his number and called him and Wayne didn't know who he was and Donald left him a message. And, and so Wayne didn't call him back and, uh, <laughs> and, and Donald was really hurt. And so he called the studio manager, Dick LaPalm, who used to be with chess records and all and was Dick called Wayne and said, you trust me, you really want to play on this record. And, uh, so Wayne came and, um, and it was such a monumental day. Um, Donald always had, he was kind of hunched over and kind of played with his hair and kind of, you know, it was kind of like this and, um, you know, would wear these funny t-shirts and stuff. And um, that day he actually stood up straight <laughs> and had this beautiful white striped ironed button down shirt and just 
showed the utmost respect to Wayne. And Wayne went in there for about half an hour and did six passes and then left. And Roger comped it. And there you have it. Amazing. Uh, there's so much serendipity there. So Wayne Shorter almost didn't appear on the album at all. That's uh, incredible. Thank you. Neil, Lenise mentioned Soundmasters, and I believe that played a role in your past as well. Tell us about the connection and how that acted as a springboard for you. I was in a band at the time, I guess 1984 is when I moved to California from, from Jersey. I was in a band. Well, not a band. It was me and this other guy. We were like the Black Hall of Notes. <laughs> We came to California with big, big dreams, you know, with our demo tape and wanted to uh, find a record deal. And, and and at that time, I was I was playing drums, but um, things didn't didn't work out according to plan. So he moved back to Jersey and I stayed. You know, I was trying to find some uh, some studio work or maybe find some some touring gigs or, or something that didn't work out. But being that I was always the producer in the band, you know, I was the guy that would always stay and, and you know, try to find out what the whole studio vibe was was about. You know, I loved all the, the knobs and faders and lights and all that stuff. And, the, you know, the VU meters, I used to love that stuff. And you just just sit in, in the back and watch the engineer, you know, mix or record. And I was intrigued by it. After my friend went went back to Jersey and I stayed, I was like, you know, I was looking through the, I think it was the music connection. And I, I found an ad for the Soundmasters. And I was like, okay, let me take a shot at that. You know, let me go to school. Because really, I, I wasn't thinking about being an in engineer. I wanted to learn how to engineer my my productions. Yeah. So I said, okay, let me go there. And so I went to Sound Soundmaster and, you know, it was cool. I went there for a couple of years and... And then after, I mean, long, long story short, after that, I had a friend that, that was already here. Um, it was a friend that I met through my aunt and he knew Michael Jackson's brother, Randy. And so wow. I got a gig. Randy had a, a home studio. And so I had worked there for, for a little, little bit as an assistant. One day we, we had did a gig at Larrabee. So I was there and uh, I had met the owner, Kevin Mills. And at the time, he was looking for assistance. And so I had asked Randy if it was okay to take take the gig, you know, because I just didn't want to leave and, you know, and not talk to him about it. But he said, he was like, yeah, just, you know, go go for it. And so I left Randy and I went to Larrabee, which I thought was the Holy Grail. Yeah. I started assisting there and met my met my mentor, uh, a guy named Tave Mote. So he was kind of my, he was my sensei. Um, I learned a lot from from him, but yeah, that was my journey from 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 Soundmaster and what I went went through, and you know, because a lot of people thought that I lived in uh, Georgia first, but no, I'm a Jersey kid that that came here to California, and and then I went to uh, Georgia in 1990 after thinking that California was a little congested on finding gigs and everything. But working at, at Larrabee was was great, you know. At that time, they were working on a lot of R&B records and a lot of rock records. You know, I you know I met a lot of great great people like Richard Perry and um, U2 came through there and Janet Jackson came through there. I mean, a lot of great people came through there. Prince came came through there. It was a really cool cool time in, in the late '80s. So I was there um, at Larrabee from '88. And I left there probably early 1990. Thank you, Neil. That's an amazing path so far. You took some really courageous decisions and followed your heart. 
Brilliant. Uh, now, I would love to jump over to you, CJ, surrounded as you are by racks of awesome gear. It just looks incredible. Tell us about your studio, The Treehouse. I'm in an industrial park, really ugly building that, that no one would ever think twice about. For me, uh, I take off the Superman cape when I walk out this door and come home as Clark Kent. <laughs> One of the things uh, I like doing here is, for instance, I did the a Toto's last record, Toto 14, and uh, had the band sitting in the control room. I got six headphone stations. And I put the microphone right in the middle of the floor in the control room, and we all wore headphones, no talkback, so I didn't have to. Because running the talkback when six guys are all trying to talk to someone in the booth, not happening. No, no. So it, it really made communication great, and it, it's a very intimate environment here. Everybody that walks in, they go, oh, this place is so cozy. I go, that's cool. <laughs> right on. The only person that didn't say that was Joe Cocker. uh came here. I, I, I was producing a record for him and I said, Hey, why don't we try and do some vocals at my studio? You know, there's no reason to rent out capital a to put one mic stand out there, you know? So he came over and he walked in this control room and he said, Oh, what a box. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> go, whatever. Down the vocal booth. Well, in the next three hours, we did seven finished, finished vocals. Final vocals for the record, seven. And so the next day, uh, the, the record label called me and they said, uh, Joe wants to know if he can do his whole record at your studio. Because it was wow. just the two of us here. You know, I engineer everything myself. I really like having that one-on-one -on -one relationship with the artist. And, you know, the stories that get told when there's an, not other people in the room, it, it creates an intimate bond between me and the artist. And, you know, as you guys all know, a trust is uh, is what needs to be established for someone to bear their soul and 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 then for you to be able to critique them and and uh, uh, you know work with them. Trust is a big issue, so that intimacy of this room really really works. It's a really really the place is conducive for that. Amazing. I love Joe Cocker's reaction. Absolutely priceless. And listeners, check out the show notes for a very special video tour of the Treehouse that CJ has very kindly recorded for us. It is an incredible space full of mouthwatering vintage gear and some gems for avid Spinal Tap fans like myself. Lenise, tell us a bit about the process of working at your home studio. One of the projects I recently did was a French artist, and she wanted me to do produce four songs for her. So she came and stayed in the couch that's like right there, and that opens up to a bed. And uh, on the my piano is right on the other side of this monitor that you're looking at me. And so I um, we did all the pre-production here. She stayed here. We cooked. We um, talked about the arrangements and the direction we wanted the songs to go into. She wrote her charts here. Um, I contracted talent on this side. I recorded the demos. We'd listen and say, let's move this around. We did all of that could happen right here. And then we went into Evergreen Studios and um, cut the uh, cut the basic tracks. And the musicians that I contracted, there were three things that they had to be able to do. Uh, they had to be able to read, um, read music. They had to be able to um, uh, 
play multiple instruments and they had to be kind. And um, those, uh, and, and it was wonderful. So we went in from here, we went to Evergreen the evening before. And as I set up with my assistant and all of that, um, rehearsed the band and got them all set up and got their sounds and everything. And then went in the next day and hammered out the four songs like crazy. And then, uh, um, and there were some other musicians working in other rooms at uh, evergreen who came in to hang out and one of them was um phil chen who's a great bass player he was uh rod stewart's bass player and all you know do you think i'm sexy and all that cool wow. ch- chinese jamaican fabulous guy he was totally enamored with the um, um project and he said i have to play on this i have to play on your record i have to play on your record so um we brought him over here and uh <laughs> he sat on um, the piano bench and uh, played banjo and played fretless bass. And uh, I sat over here and and recorded him and and we just hung out here. And between Brian, my guy Brian Risner, between him and myself, <laughs> we got a lot of stuff and a lot of speakers and a lot of instruments and amplifiers and direct boxes and whatever. And you just set it up, whatever you need. And we just had the best time. We, Phil didn't want to leave. He was here till like about 10 o'clock at night and uh, just hanging out. And that's, to me, that will be uh, a memory that I will have forever that makes it, uh, that vibe is on that record. And, and that's what's important to me. Ah, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's such an intimate setting where you're working. You build up a profound relationship with the people you're working with, and that's essentially what gets captured on the records. Uh, listeners, if you would like to check out those recordings produced by Lenise, just have a look for Clara Bellino's album called Unexpected. And the tracks featuring Phil Chen are I Came Here and Bobby's song Talking With Angels, which were indeed recorded in Lenise's living room. Neil, I wonder, could you continue taking us on your career journey from Larrabee onwards uh, up until working with Outcast? When it comes to Outcast, I met those guys when they were they were in high school. I'm I'm about ten years older than them, but I was working with a uh, production group, crew called Organized Noise down in at Atlanta, and at the time we were working on a, another project, and so Out, Outcast would you know. I don't think they were even called outcasts yet, but they used to come straight straight from school to the uh, studio, and you know they would just sit around and be fly flies on the wall and bring bring their rhymes, and you know they would uh, talk to the to the guys of organized noise. Just that's like a three member uh, production crew with uh, Ray, Rico, and and Pat. And so they would come come down and, and and show them their show them their rhymes and and you know and I guess organized noise would kind of just have them there just to learn learn the ropes and see how they work and you know just have them come come down every, every day just to be used used to the process and um, at the time like I guess on the side they would do tracks for them and you know go through demos and stuff and um, at that time they were looking for a, a record deal for the guys and they would do show, showcases for um, L.A. Reed and L.A. Reed turned them down about two or three times. 
at the time. He had the face records with Babyface. So one day I was I was sitting next to L.A. and we were working on this because I, I knew L.A. here in Los Angeles, L.A. who is personally known as Antonio Reed. And so I was sitting there working with him on a Whitney Houston, Bobby Brown track. What was it called? We have something in common. It was it was a remix. And so at that time, Organized Noise would keep bugging him and, you know, and trying to get out, Outkast signed. And so he was sitting there and he got a call. And after he hung up, he asked me, he said, what do you think about this Outkast? And I said, I think they're great. I think you should sign them. He was like, OK, cool. And he put, you know, and he signed them just based on that. A lot of people don't know that that story, but he he turned around and asked me. And I was like, what are you asking me for? You know, <laughs> so he asked me and I told him the truth. I was like, I, I think they're great. OK, cool. And that's and that's how it went down. Incredible. So, so many things almost didn't happen. Uh, we heard about Wayne Shorter's sax solo on Asia and how Outcast may not have even had a deal if you hadn't had that conversation. Neil, are you seeing a move towards recordings with more live performances these days? I'm, I'm part of this movement of bringing live in- instrumentation back, you know. Um, so I don't like to cut in- anything but but live, you know. And um, and so um, about a year ago, I uh, created a production team with me, Verdine White from Earth, Earth and Fire, and the drummer, John Paris from Verdine White. So we're a... a production crew now so going back to the whole social thing is we like to have that social feeling where people come in and we cut and um and also we love to cut to uh analog tape first we cut the drums and the bass to analog and and then we take that and transfer it to pro Pro tools so there's certain rules that we have about keeping you know certain integrity and that, that that sound you know, with Final Tap, uh, we had a different approach. We we recorded to analog, but transferred it to Pro Tools and back to give it that nice digital harshness. You know. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, that, that's a pro tip right there. Thank you, CJ. So we've already heard about the career journeys of Lenise and Neil to where they are now. CJ, what's your origin story? I mean, I came up, uh, my first studio work was in Chicago doing jingles and I quickly rose to become the number one guy in town there for about 10 years. Uh, worked for 35 different producers and was doing five or six sessions a day, mm-hmm. one hour sessions. Yeah. I had two keyboard wow. rigs. These things were moving around the town, hop in a taxi, walk right in. Here's 40 pieces from the Chicago Symphony. Walk in. The next thing is a, it's a country thing. Next thing is a jazz field. Next thing. So it was a great training ground and working with different studios, different engineers. I finally decided I got to come out to L.A. and make records. I, did, I didn't learn all this to uh, make the sound of flying shrimp for Red Lobster. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course what I did. Sound like? <laughs> Probably paid better. The only problem is it was a lot of money, and uh, I was in my 20s in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to leave it there. All right. Yeah. <laughs> leave that sit right there. Sounds like all of us. (laughs) So anyway, I came up to LA and uh, uh, the jingle producer, the top guy in in Chicago's name was Dick Marks and his son was Richard. And Richard was out here and and his dad said, you got to use this guy on a song. He said, there's keyboard players, you know, there's a hundred keyboard players out here. Why don't we need this guy? He says, just give him a shot on a song. And so Richard said, here's a cassette of a song. We're not, it's not even for a record. 
we maybe we can put it in a film or something. You can. I said, I got it. And I listened to it. I made the demo. The demo, he put the vocal on. We put a nylon guitar on. That's all it is. The rest of the record is all me. It, the demo was what went on the record. And it was, the song was called Right Here Waiting. Mm. One of the big no. hits of the 80s. Huge. Giant number one. Huge number one hit. So that's the first song I did in L.A. So now the phone starts ringing. Hi, it's Phil Ramone. I don't know if you know me. I've been, uh, <laughs> Hi, it's Desmond Child. Hi, it's, you know, so I started doing sessions here and, and working around and did some live gigs. And I, anyway, this one live gig, it was at the Roxy. We played this gig and the sound man came up and said, hey, my boss would love you. Where are you from? Who are you? And I said, I just moved to town. He goes, oh, my God, my boss would flip. I said, what's your boss's name? He said, Don Henley. I said, Don Henley. Oh, seriously. <laughs> and he had just done the uh, uh, End of the Innocence record. Mm-hmm. And you know, I knew that record by heart. And so he said he's looking for keyboard players for his tour. So they auditioned, I think, 42 guys or something like that. But that Bruce Hornsby stuff, I grew up playing in church. Like, <laughs> I didn't have to learn how to play like Bruce Hornsby. I I already did that. So I went in and aced it. They called me for a second callback. Aced it again. Went for the third callback. It, finally, it came down to me and another guy. And I got the gig. And uh, they called and they said, you know, you've got the gig. Uh, but there's one stipulation. Don wants you to shave your beard. I said, I'm sorry. I said, yeah, Don wants you to shave your beard. I said, well, I might shave my beard one day if I get up and decide I'm going to shave my beard today, but I'm I'm not shaving my beard because someone tells me to. No. They said, well, you know, this is a stipulation for the gig. I said, well, I'm not shaving my beard. I'll talk to you later. Because I knew they would call back and go, okay, you know, okay, you got the gig. No, they didn't. I didn't get the gig. I, <laughs> I was heartbroken. I just thought I've just blown my whole career. I've ruined my, my whole career. So- a couple of weeks later, Katie Seagal, the actress from Married with Children, great singer, is at a party and she goes up to Don Hanley and says, hey, you know, I'm putting a band together. I'm going to do a thing in town and, and make a record and I need a keyboard player. And he goes, well, I know a great guy, but he's got an ugly beard. <laughs> <laughs> so Katie Seagal calls me to be in her band. She sends me her charts and stuff and I demo everything out. I, you know, make tracks top to bottom that, you know, sound pretty good for, and you guys talk about real instruments. I consider the synthesizer a real instrument because it's me playing it. Yeah. Anyway, so they have the first rehearsal and the drummer walks in. I go, are you Russ Kunkel? And he goes, yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, Russ Kunkel is in the band. This is insane. So Russ sits down and he says, what are we doing? I said, well, here's the demo. I played it and he goes, oh, excuse me, stop. What am I hearing right now? I said, well, that's the demo. He goes, no, no, no. But who did this? I said, I did. Yeah, but who played bass? I said, that's me. Who did the drums? I said, I programmed those. Who did the, I said, I did everything. Who mixed this? I said, I did. He goes, okay, I got two people you got to meet. He introduced me to Greg Ladani, hmm. who was my key to meeting Toto, hmm. Joe Cocker, and many other artists. I ended up working with him for 25 years. And the other person he introduced me to was Christopher Guest. Oh. And I got the job as keyboardist in Spinal Tap and ended up doing nine movies for Christopher Guest. <sighs> out of this because I didn't shave my damn beard. <laughs> I stood up for myself. And the, the lesson is you got to follow your gut. Never cutting my beard again, CJ. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it just led to so many great things. And I ended up meeting these incredible people 
that I'm still working with. Well, Greg unfortunately passed away. I've got his ash sitting up here and his his Merlin sitting right there that he mixed. Always oh, had up oh, oh, so Greg's up there, and uh, he was like my best friend. It was a tough oh, loss. I'm so sorry. So was Ed, Ed Cherney mm-hmm. was a you know one of my best mm-hmm. friends. Phil mm-hmm. Ramon was like an uncle to me. Eighty nine. Uh, I'm working with Phil Ramon on a record with a group uh, band called Boy Meets Girl. And the record, by the way, got shelved because the, the A&R guy got fired. So they just shelved the record. We made this amazing record that nobody ever heard. But so I sat with Phil and Phil was so much fun to work with. His stories are better than anybody's, you know, him and Quincy together. It's just, just, you can't get a word in edgewise. So anyway, I, I got this program, an anagram maker for my, computer it was one of the Macs with the floppy drives back then. And I anagrammed Phil Ramon's name. And his anagram was Mr. Painhole. Wow. <laughs> so I always called him Mr. Painhole and he loved it. He called wow. me on the phone. He'd go, he'd go Vanston, it's Painhole. <laughs> <laughs> so it was Mr. Painhole. That's you know it was like an uncle to me, you know? And that's the thing we were talking about earlier about people. This is a family, you know, you want to create a family situation mm-hmm. and musicians are the funniest people in the world. Their sense of humor is so great. The hang, getting the jokes told, hanging out, getting that brotherhood, getting that feel of being together is so important. Ed Cherney, I would do records with him and we'd be out joking around Kenny Aronoff and me and Keltner and, all these great musicians telling stories and it's like 45 minutes goes by. It's like, what, what are we going to record? So finally we go in and go, you know, is there a demo we can listen to? And I'd go, Oh yeah, sure. And he'd play it. Ed was just letting us hang. He mm-hmm. knew it was creating the vibe. He wasn't, mm-hmm. we thought, you know, he's not keeping track of time. No, he knew that was important to getting mm-hmm. time well spent. A bond. I, I did a session with Ed Turney once and before that session with Ed Turney, I I was assisting engineers that it almost like they had this code of being assholes. It's like they just wanted you to, you know, to crawl and suffer and you know, they wanted you to have pain in, you know, in your life. You know what I'm saying? Um, but Ed would oh, yeah. come in and he had this light, he would come and just smile and have fun. And, you know, and I've always been this nice guy. And so when I saw these other in- engineers back when I was coming up, I thought, oh, maybe that's how you're supposed to be. You're supposed to treat assistants like like scum. You know what I mean? So he came in and was like just a joy to work with. And he taught me, like, it's OK to be a nice guy. Uh, it's interesting that you're all masters completely of your instruments your mixing boards, the technology, the equipment, and every aspect of the audio process. But as CJ said, it is so much about the emotional connection and the trust that you inspire and you bring out of the people who work with you. Oh, yeah. If um, if there's no emotional response to the music, it's like, what is it then? It's nothing. If the audience or the um, emotion isn't there, that's what the goal is um, about a good song. It creates an emotional response. And so um, one, it's always about the song and then about the performance and production of the song, but the song comes first and it has to, like, I have to get goosebumps and tears in my eyes. I cry a lot out of them. You know, I hold it back, but I'm not the only one in the room crying, you know? Um, And uh, that's important. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, one thing I've noticed about all of you is that you give back to the community. Uh, Lenise, yourself through Sound Girls and many other organizations. Um, 
how important is it for all of you to give back and to encourage the next generation of audio professionals? It's so important. And I feel bad for these kids. You know, all three of us came up uh, uh, working in different studios. And me as a session keyboard player, I worked with all the great producers. It's just, just an insane list. And all the great engineers, all the great musicians, hundreds of them, mm-hmm. and all the great studios. And so I, that, that is over. Kids today aren't going to be able to get that. And uh, yeah. they need to be exposed to other, other people's views and how they do stuff. And, and I think the old school is important. Uh, kids, you got to learn your history, man. And yeah. go back and read some liner notes and see who engineered it and see what studio it was and follow the path, you know. So I, when I get to go talk to kids, I really like being able to educate them on their roots. And they're standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm-hmm. They yeah. need to know who those giants are that paved the way before them. Back in the day, you know, we took pride in being different. You know, like mm-hmm. you would not go near a, a, another person's sound. That no. was like. You know, that was, you just wouldn't do it. No, it was already there. (laughs) Yeah. You know, right. You need another one. Right. But yeah, credits was, I was a credit junkie. Like I I wanted to know who played what, who who produced it, who wrote it, who did this, who did that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, we were talking about the changing landscape of how people are consuming music. Uh, there are less accurate credits, as you said. And uh, we also have this pipe to the universal jukebox where almost everything is available 24-7. But one of the interesting things that's happening, and we actually spoke about this on the first episode of the Audio Matters podcast, is that during the lockdown, people have been rediscovering the art of active listening. And there seems to be something interesting happening to our relationship with culture, with music, with art. Um, what's your take on this, CJ? I've been predicting that we have an uh, amazing awakening that's going to be happening from this. And this is a traditional thing. You look after World War I, you had the Roaring Twenties. After World War II, you had the, the, the 50s and all the joyous music and the birth of rock and roll. And then uh, Vietnam and 60s and JFK and all that brought on the, the greatest on, you know, from the late 60s through the 70s, uh, if you just start making the list, matter of fact, we were making the total record. And I said, you know why we're so damn good at what we do? Look at what we listen to. Look what we listen to. I, so I just said, I'm just going to throw it. And I said, you know, Stevie Wonder. And, and, and someone said, you know, Cat Stevens. And I said, Seals and Crofts, Jethro Tull. And we just started going down. Gentle Giant. Uh, yes. Emerson Lake and Palmer. 10 cc we just started going this wormhole and we, it was 15 minutes and we're still naming artists and everyone was such an individual sound right and anyway so i'm back to what i was saying i think there's a, a rebirth that's going to be coming out of this people have had to slow down a little bit and i think music's value uh, has only been increased by by this time this difficult time we're going through i always tell people you are what you listen to mm-hmm. and uh, when I hear guys my age say, oh, there's no good music anymore. And then I just go, oh, dude, so what are you listening to? What are yeah. you listening to? Tell me what you're listening to. And it's like a blank. Like there's so much great stuff out there. So much great stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. There's a band called Phoenix out of France that I'm oh, just yeah. in with these guys. So damn good. So you yeah. are what you listen to. And, and, you know, all three of us, I know when we were teenagers, Listen to everything. Everything. Oh, yeah. everything. Stop listening to records. 
Yeah. I think it's more fractal now. These kids have got so many other things to do and so much stimulus coming at them that it's mm-hmm. been pushed aside. I, I, it's, it's mm-hmm. a lot. It's a mm-hmm. lot. Yeah. The more technology that we have, I think the worse it, it gets. I think we just have to learn how to use it. Right. Um, but I think we use it in a way where we forget where we come come from. You know, it's mm-hmm. like we're so busy moving forward that we forget where we came came from, and how to take that and incorporate it and, and make something make something greater out of it. Yeah. It's like um, when you see people going to uh, they're on vacation or whatever, and they're on a tour of the Sistine Chapel, let's say, or something, and they're all looking through it through their their iPhones or their cameras. They would not. <laughs> and they're not just actually looking at it themselves. You want to say, just just put those things away. Right. And um, like at concerts, everybody's texting and having to film. You see the people filming a concert. You know they're never going to watch that thing again. Right. And um, they're missing actually the experience of just being in the concert, being in the club, being in the music. Well, but you know, the other thing is economically – you think about being a young musician now. I mean, when I was 18, uh-huh. I got a loan for $10,000, which I looked up would be about $76,000 now. I got a loan and I bought a Yamaha CP70. I bought a Mini Moog. I bought an Oberheim Four Voice and a Rhodes. And it was like the most badass rig, you know. And I paid it off by playing in, in clubs mm-hmm. six nights a week. And uh, what kid can do that today? Neil, I'm wondering, what do you see personally in the world that gives you hope? Just seeing, you know, how everybody's coming together right right now. I, I feel that everybody in the world is finally on the same frequency. Right on. And because this because this feels like it's this feels like a war. Mm-hmm. So after every, every war, I think great things come out of it. I always tell people, you know, great things come out of tragedies, un- unfortunately. A lot of great things, and um, and I always think, you know, God doesn't make mis- mistakes, and, and I always think that God is 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 the biggest uh, comedian ever, because <laughs> some sometimes if you if you look at the world, you kind of have to have to laugh at it, because right right now, being that the music business has kind of gotten one has kind of got one sided. In a way, because I always think that everything can co- coexist in this business. Everything can, as, as long as as it's good. But things haven't been so so great late, lately. So I think out of out of this, I think great music is going to be coming out of it. I think um, a lot of, a lot of the songwriting is going to be better. Um, yeah, I think the, a lot of the, the just what we do is just going to. I think a lot of great music is is going to happen now. I think it's going to become the, the, the soundtrack of our lives because, yep. you know, in in the 70s, you really had some great music. You had great production teams, you, you know, like like the Philly sound, which, yes. you know, because everything mm-hmm. kind of came out of the out of the civil rights movement, you know, out of the, 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 the late 60s into the early 70s. You had all this great music that, that came out of that, out of everything that had happened up until that time, you know, um, you know, you had what's what's going on by Mark Marvin Gaye. All this great music that that came out of that. Um, so I think that that's going to happen now too. A lot of great things are going to come out of what what we're going going through. Well, you know, great great artists turn uh, pain into pleasure. 
most and definitely. Chaos into order. Mm-hmm. And uh, they speak for an entire generation sometimes with what they create. And we need those artists now. And I think that's one of the great things about making music is it's, it helps us personally mm-hmm. deal with our pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a way to process, you know, process all that pain. So that, I'd say it's a call to arms right now to songwriters, especially. We need some great songs. Yeah, I think so. And collaboration, universal collaboration. The fact that technology allows us to collaborate um, like we're doing right now, um, you know, once they get lat- latency issues sorted out and all of that, but uh, uh, it's it's an international, global um, event now instead of, uh, you know, we're we're limited by our location or who can fly in or who can't or the budgetary or anything like that. This this is really facilitating our ability to have a global musical creative collaborative presence. Right. People that push away the technology now, especially when they when they rag on Spotify and Apple Music and things like that. This is these are the greatest tools we've ever had. Right. Mm-hmm. So and, yeah, it, it reaches globally. It needs to be embraced, not pushed away. And that's that's unfortunately what people do when they get old is they, they push away new things, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. That's why we got to in- incorporate both. We really do. Right. Just incorporate both and just make make something great. That's what it's about. Uh, yeah. A great song wins every time. Right. That's yes. what, yeah, that's right. It's, yeah. About the, right. it's about the song first, not about technology. Yes. It really oh, is. Absolutely. Wonderful. Just wonderful. Thank you. So I have one more question for all of you. What piece of advice would you give to your younger selves? Um, I would say my younger self would be patience. I always think about patience first, you know, because being in in this business, you have to have the the patience uh, because you're, it's such a competitive field. And I think it's about not worrying about the next guy. You have to hone in on, on yourself and of course, use all of your influences to create who, who you are. And during that moment, I think you have to build patience in order to fight through all this con- congestion of, of, of the music business. There's so many of us doing, doing the same, same thing. And how can one guy stick out and get that gig? Uh, is, it, is it luck? Some people say it's luck. Some people say it's fate, some, whatever. But I think you just have to work hard and have a lot of, a lot of patience. Mm-hmm. Great advice. Thank you. I, I would say for me, uh, one of the things that comes up uh, would, would be get your business together, uh, figure out how, how to save money and how to, how to uh, collect your money and how to charge the right rate, get a songwriter contract when you write a song with the splits on it. You know, I, I was so bad at so, so much of that. I gave away, literally millions of dollars because of mm-hmm. not asking for, I wrote a bridge for a number one song and didn't even ask for songwriting credit, mm-hmm. you know, so wow. that, that's terrible, you know? Yeah. No, that's important. And yeah, save your money. And also if you, um, if you know what that thing is that you're passionate about, um, it's, uh, it's okay to, um, work at other things so you can afford to follow through on that passion. Right now, the music business is is challenging. Um, and uh, to apply your skills in such a way that you can afford to do that thing you love. I do a lot of things because 
I want to be able to record music and I don't always make the money I would like to make doing music, but it's my passion and it's, it's what I want to do. It's, um, the palette I paint with and, and the, um, you know, the instruments I play are the technology and to have the joy of doing that, I'm, I can do post-production. I can do archival work. I can do supervising. I can dialogue at it. I can record fully. I can talk about it. Um, you know, I get paid a lot often more to talk about engineering than I do actually engineering. Um, all of these things to diversify and it's okay um, not to be so linear and uh, myopic perhaps um, because you, you want to build a pyramid, not a totem pole. So um, if a brick gets pulled out from the bottom of that pyramid, that pyramid's still going to stand. Um, you have a totem pole and you pull something out, chances are it, you know, it may collapse. So, um, and take care of your health. Be healthy. Uh, I, I t had to take a big break after the Blondie record um, because during that time I did about at least nine records in one year with uh, Mike Chapman and it was wild and crazy and intense and, and I ended up getting cancer. And uh, the, the day after I um, uh, finished mastering the Blondie record, I drove to Mexico to the cancer clinic and the doctor said quit your job or die and so here i was you know platinum record <laughs> crash and i didn't work for eight years and uh, uh got well but uh i you know the universe intervened and said boy if you're not smart enough to be healthy and take care of yourself i'm going to help you out with this and you're just going to quit and that wasn't something I wish would have happened, but that's what happened. And, and, uh, um, so, uh, get sleep when you can eat well, get exercise, you know, honor, you know, self-care is absolutely vital. So some great advice there for anyone who wants to follow in the legendary footsteps of our special guests. Thank you so much, CJ Vanston, Neil Pogue and Lenise Bent for joining us for this LA Confidential special edition and sharing your extraordinary life stories. Listeners, don't miss a single helping of audio goodness. Make sure to subscribe to the Audio Matters podcast presented to you by Harmon using your favourite podcast app. Also, check out the brilliant title playlist chosen every week by our guests with a few from myself as well. And finally, remember to watch the video tour of CJ Vanston's awesome studio, The Treehouse. You can find all the details in the episode notes. Join us next week when we celebrate Make Music Day with Aaron Friedman, the president of the Make Music Alliance, and Lee Whitmore, the executive director of the Grammy Music Education Coalition. Tune in to explore the power of music, the importance of music education, and learn why your brain on music is a better brain. See you next week.